Welcome to Apple Arcade Plus, the show where you get to hear from the people behind Apple Arcade games. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. The core original pitch was if you have a piece of paper and you have a character living on one side of a piece of paper and you have another character living on the other side, you're effectively in two different worlds, which is very much like when people are in a long distance relationship. If you fold that paper, you can create a way to like merge their two worlds together and provide a way for them to reunite. Welcome back to another episode of Apple Arcade Plus. On this episode, we are joined by Mark from Lightning Rod Games. He's the co-founder, and they are the makers of A Fold Apart, which is a really touching, almost Pixar short is the best way to describe this game, where your two characters are separated in a long-distance relationship. And as the story progresses, you're folding paper to solve these puzzles, and your character will overanalyze text messages, and it's just a really well-done game. And I'm excited to share this interview all about A Fold Apart. It's one of my favorite new entries on Apple Arcade. You can learn more at lightningrodgames.com. And as a reminder, if you'd like to support this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Every review helps this podcast be more discoverable in search and it's greatly appreciated if you just head on over to apple podcast to leave a review right now well with that here's my interview with mark all about a fold apart enjoy welcome to the podcast mark can you first introduce yourself and a fold apart sure so my name is mark lafromboids i'm one of the co-founders of lightning rod games we just released a game called a fold apart which is a puzzle game about a long distance relationship in a world of folding paper where did the inspiration for the story to a fold apart come from? So, so prior to starting uh, Lightning Rod Games, uh, I was working at Disney Interactive in California, and my significant other was still living in Ontario, Canada, where we both were originally from. And so, for about a year and a half, we were living three time zones and about almost an entire continent apart. And it was really tough. There was a lot of emotional ups and downs that we went through, and I thought that was very interesting, and I kind of wanted to make a game that touched on some of those emotions. And But I didn't really want to make a game that just had a story about a long-distance relationship. I wanted to make something that had game mechanics that sort of reinforced it, but I didn't really know how to do it. So I, start, I sort of put that idea on the back burner for a little bit, and it was a few years later... My co-founder Steven and I were just brainstorming innovative gameplay mechanics that we thought would be interesting to see, like something that we thought hadn't seen before or that would be kind of cool to make a game about. And one of the ones that he came up with was the idea of folding paper, sort of like the back of a Mad magazine. And I was like, oh, that's neat. I'm like, I don't really know how we make a game out of that, but I think it's a cool idea for the paper folding. We were just like, oh, well, it's too bad. We can't really combine these ideas. <laughs> and I, a few months later, I was like, oh, wait, we totally can combine these ideas. The original pitch, and I kind of like, it was like a funny, it was like a, a fervent pitch over webcam uh, to Steven with like some crumpled graph paper and like stick figures that I drew on them. But the, the, the core original pitch was if you have a piece of paper and you have a character living on one side of a piece of paper and you have a, another character living on the other side, you're effectively in two different worlds, which is very much like when people are in a long-distance relationship. If you fold that paper, you can create a way to like merge their two worlds together and provide a way for them to reunite. And I was like, well, this is what it kind of feels like what you want to be able to do when you're in a long-distance relationship because you're usually at least one person is in a specific location just because either like their job or family or school or something like that. And you're, you're like, well, I don't really need to want to be in this physical location. I just have to be here. And I wish I could just like take our two physical locations and like mash them together so we could be together. So I thought that was a kind of a neat way to represent it uh, using folding paper. And then we kind of, we kind of expanded on it from there, but that was, that was where the original idea came from. 
Something I love about the puzzles is how they start by your character overanalyzing a text message, which is something I think all humans are kind of wired to do. Was this an idea you had from the very beginning, or was it something you discovered in your development process? So one of the ways that we decided to do the storytelling as we kind of expanded the game was we're like, well, one of the big things about living apart from someone is is communication and, and inherently miscommunication and, and some of the misunderstandings that could possibly happen, when, especially when you're using things like text messaging to, to communicate with one another. And we thought that might be an interesting way to sort of combine this idea of like they're, they're talking to each other and how they communicate and then sort of justifying the, the world that the puzzles take place in. And so it kind of it, it ended up combining pretty nicely where we had this section of the game where they would text back and forth and eventually one of the characters would say something that the character you're playing now, like the current character, would misinterpret and maybe take it a different way or just have like a really strong emotional reaction to what was said. And that would cause them to go into like this, call it like an emotional world. And so they're inside this emotional world, and that's where they're kind of working through this emotion in their heads. So you see like their internal thoughts, and that's where the puzzles happen. And the puzzle mechanics are sort of representing their emotional state as well. So there was some thought given to like what mechanics we put at what parts of the game that we felt would be representative of sort of the feelings that they're currently having so like early in the game the the teacher's a little bit worried about the architect's expectations of of them moving to the city to be with them and so they're like well I don't, I don't want to i want to stay in the town and so the main mechanic there is like a, this mechanical like roadblock like sort of like a street crossing sign that is a bit aggressive if the teacher gets near it and so the whole idea is that you have to like cover it up and and it's kind of representing the fears that the teacher has of the city itself. Um, and so that was, we kind of worked that way. So like as you're kind of going through these these puzzles worlds, you're solving the puzzles. And as they progress through the world, they also kind of start solving some of their internal issues with what with the emotions that they're feeling. So it's it's sort of a way of them going through and working through like their internal thoughts and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah, and it does a really good job of, of doing just that. You're kind of thrown in their brain as you're reading a text message and there are some options of what you respond to your partner with, but those are more for you to just connect with that character. There's no branching paths or yeah. something like that. It, we wanted to add a way to let players kind of shape the personality of how they perceive the characters um, while they're playing. So usually a lot of times we do more of a, a silly answer or more of a serious answer. And I, I thought that was a good way to let, players play a little bit um, and shape the personality of the characters a little bit more. It doesn't change the overall structure of the story, but it does It does kind of provide a little bit more personal feeling into it, I'd say. Like, if you, you yeah. want a character to play a certain way, you can kind of do so. The architect, especially, is particularly bad of, like, they'll have an emotional reaction and then work through it and then have and do a really terrible job of ever expressing the emotion that they or expressing the concern that they had to the, the other character. A lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll come to an emotional realization and then just cover it up with a joke anyways, which was intentional. That was, that was a character thing that I, I intentionally wrote for the character. I thought that was, it was interesting to have yeah. this character who, who could figure things out internally, but still had a hard time communicating them even when they kind of figured things out. And so, yeah, so we let, but we let, we let players kind of play with that a bit. Sometimes we can let you make the architect a little bit better at expressing themselves <laughs> than, yeah. than maybe by default. So. 
in, in a way, this game is really great at showing why you should just pick up the phone and call your partner. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's really <laughs> funny. Like, people, I've seen this criticism of the game where it's like, oh my god, these guys, these people just need to talk. And I'm like, yes, that's the point. <laughs> that's why, we, like, it's intentionally written as them being bad at communication. It's just, it's, it's kind of saying like, this is like what can really bad things can happen if you just don't communicate very well, or if you're just doing conversations via text. So there's a lot of there's a lot of like implications. Like th- this isn't the only way they ever communicate. We 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 skip through time a lot, so it's just meant to show like snapshots of parts of their commu- of their relationships with one another. But it's it's like here's what can happen if like sometimes if you're doing text messages because I think that's something that is relatable. Like you'll you'll be sending texts and you're like this what, <laughs> and it might it might lead to a call la- later on and be like is this what you meant or you're like this is about what I took it or sometimes you're like you intentionally don't bring that stuff up because you're a little bit worried, especially when you're apart from someone that if you're upset, you don't want to make them upset because yeah. you can't really console each other to the full extent that you could, if you were in the same room, it's one of the other things too. Sometimes it's, it's easier to, to bury those negative emotions um, than to actually talk about them. And I'm trying to remember, did you implement read receipts or play around with that during the development process? Not really. No, we, we talked about some, there were some ideas that we had for, um, Things that we could do that with text messaging that we didn't, we we decided not to explore. That was one of them. So read receipts, not really like we don't, like someone sending something and then having it say it was read. We were playing around with that in like timestamps. It never really felt like it was adding a whole lot. The other one that I really did want to do, but we ended up cutting it because it was going to be make it very difficult to do in localization was typos. And and that's a joke that you can do in English, and then it's really difficult to localize that joke to make like a typo that would maybe look like have two different meanings depending on how how it was mis, misspelled and so we ended up cutting that because it's it just it was going to be very very difficult to try to do that joke but yeah so we played with some ideas but that the one that we kind of worked with was this idea of so that there's one part where the we show the actual message from both sides uh, later in the game and so that was kind of an interesting one where they both were kind of interpreting the same the same message triggered an emotional response like for both the sender and the and recipient. So, yeah, so we, we play with that, that idea a little bit, but not really necessarily with, like, this idea of, like, I know you saw this, or, like, oh, like, the dot, dot, dots. We, that was going to be part of that sort of scenario where one person was typing and one wasn't responding. It was something that we didn't add until much, much later in the game. We, we kind of had the puzzle mechanics, and, and so, like I said, the original idea was this idea of these two characters were on the same paper all the time. It was kind of interesting because we could sort of do a puzzle, and it's like, oh, you get these two characters together... It felt very much like there's an old old Xbox 360 game called Elo Milo, where, which had a very similar premise of these two characters are separated on a 3D world, and you had to like rotate the blocks around and get them to like reach each other, and then they'd reach each other and do like a little dance, and it was happy. And but it did, like the story, the story of the game was like told through like little Polaroids in between each level, and there wasn't like a lot of stuff happening. Like the actual gameplay itself wasn't really as representative, and I, I felt like we were sort of getting towards that a little bit. I I, I wanted to pull the storytelling back into into the part where the players are, are playing the game a bit. One of the ways that we started doing it, this was done right before we had a presentation. So we were fortunate enough to be chosen to present at the Experimental Gameplay Workshop at GDC in 2017. And so we were showing, this is like back, if, you, if it's funny, if you watch that uh, presentation, it's on YouTube, it's like the entire game looks entirely different. Like this was, this was one month before we hired our new a new concept artist who's now our art director at the studio and she when she joined the studio she pitched this idea for like new art for like the entire 
character design and like world design and stuff like that. So the game looks very, very different in this presentation. But one of the things that we did uh, going into that presentation was this idea of being able to walk between puzzles. So you'd have a puzzle, you'd solve it, and then you'd be like, we call them interstitial papers, which are in the game right now, which is after you solve a puzzle, there's a piece of static paper that you walk through before you get to the next the next puzzle. And it was a way for us to kind of chain a bunch of puzzles together. And we realized like when we did that, we, we could start telling stories a little bit more because everything was kind of connected. And so the way that we originally did it was this idea of words on the screen were actually like letters that the other person had wrote. So it was like you weren't doing the internal thoughts of the current character, you were seeing like the message from the other character to them. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, letters are not... It felt it felt a little bit like, I'm like, eh, unless we like put this put the game like really long, like people don't really write letters like that anymore, right? But what we do write text messages. So I was like, oh, well, what if it was you're reading text messages from the other player? And it was hard to really convey that on paper. So I was like, then we kind of like, we're like, well, why don't we just do text messaging in general? Like, why don't we just show that? Like, I'm holding a phone and like you text message back and forth. And then the emotional kind of reaction to it, I think, was was really the epiphany for, for how we were going to structure the whole thing. Like, oh, yeah, because then we can like justify like why there's like this world that you like, why some papers are foldable and some aren't. And the foldable papers are the ones that are the puzzles that are kind of in your internal thoughts that need to be solved. So like almost like obstacles, blockers in your, in your internal thought process. And so, like, that kind of just, it was all piecemeal. That kind of came together, but it came together. We were already working on the project for a bit before we really kind of figured out the exact way that the overall structure was going to work. Where did the idea of using paper come from? I've seen Nintendo, of course, with Paper Mario, and they do yarn with, you know, Yarn Yoshi games and Kirby. So where did this idea come from? I'd say on the art design side, we, we always knew that we wanted to make something that sort of evoked the feeling of, of paper, but wasn't really made directly out of paper in the way that something like a Yoshi's Crafted World was, where it's like it's actually made out of like physical materials. We just wanted everything to feel sort of paper crafty. And so that was even some of those games were inspiration, I'd say a little bit. I'd say Pixar was probably one of the biggest ones. Uh, and it was a, it was more of a combination of like let's make something that looks like Pixar and also is low poly. And that was sort of the the art direction that that we kind of wanted to go in. Um, which I think we did really. I think I think Stephanie and our team did a really good job with. Is like everything kind of feels like it's made out of paper, but it's not like it's not it's not made like you couldn't make all the stuff in the game out of paper, or it'd be very difficult. So it looks like it is, and it's like has that kind of low poly aspect to it, like a game like Monument Valley or something like that. I thought that worked really well. So that that was really where we came from from the art direction side. I think some of the Paper Mario stuff was there, but we, it, a lot of that stuff was, like, it looked like it was made, it's like, it's meant to look like it's made out of things that you have, like craft, craft items, and we, we wanted to avoid that a bit more, so moved away from it a bit. In many ways, this game does feel like a Pixar short in the best of ways, where one of those five or six minute Pixar shorts that opens up a movie and you're crying by the end, and it feels like you're playing out that in a fold apart which is just brilliant so it's like okay if people are saying that that means that we probably hit our like our aesthetic style pretty well which is good so did the idea of collecting gold stars come from the fact that one of the characters is a teacher or was there some other reason for using a gold star to complete these puzzles a little bit um honestly it was more just a it was a readability thing it was it was one of those things where we were doing so many new things that uh, with like with like paper folding and things that people hadn't really seen that I wanted to have a touchstone 
So I would say like collecting a gold star in our levels is almost the same as like using a floppy disk as a save symbol. It's just it's something that players read pretty quickly. Where it's like, okay, it's a star. I have to get to the star. And so it, it saved us a little bit of time of trying to explain what an objective of the level was. Because when we moved away, originally it was get to the other character. And when we moved away from that, we needed like a stand-in for what they would do to get to the end. And so our original idea was actually a door. And so it was, you had to get to a door, and then you'd walk through the door, and then you'd come out a door in the other paper. What happens with the puzzles is when you fold it, you make them smaller. And so originally we were like, oh, well, if the paper's smaller, it doesn't connect to the, like if you're coming in and you make, you fold over from the right, all of a sudden that paper, the puzzle paper is not going to connect to the next static paper that's next to it. And so we had to figure out a way to like let players basically teleport. So like you get to a door, you walk through, and you come out the other side. And then we realized that you know there was a way. Stephen figured out the math on how we could be like, okay, well, no matter where the puzzle ends now, we can have the next paper come in on top of it and like connect right away, which is the way it currently works now. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So we don't really need doors anymore because doors weren't really reading great, but they were a good. It was. It made sense if you walked through a door and then came out a door. Like that teleport process looked a little bit nicer. I just kind of went with the star. I thought it felt. I thought it felt appropriate. It's. It feels a little bit weirder later in the game, and this is like a valid criticism we've heard, where it's like it's kind of weird to pick a gold star when they're sad. But I thought it would feel harder to explain why the objective of the level was changing than it was to just leave it as a star for the whole game because I didn't really appropriate. It, it didn't feel like it was having an, a, a more negative effect than if we changed it and players get confused so we end up just leaving it as a gold star how do the puzzles evolve over the course of the game so as we kind of go through the game puzzle mechanics like i was kind of mentioning this before the puzzle mechanics are sort of representing the mental state and the emotional state of the characters currently but then we also start adding some more complexities with the way that you're able to fold the paper too this was something that we got from playtesting because originally very early in the game we would just let players fold from all eight directions so you could fold both like all four edges and all four corners on every paper on both sides. We realized very quickly it's effectively 18 different choices <laughs> at any game. Oh, and then you could unfold. So really, it's like it's like 17. So you could do like 17 different things every single time you had control of the paper. Yeah, it was especially when we were trying to do like early levels where it's like you only need to make one fold. But like once you give players the ability to make 16 to 17 choices per action, they're going to start playing with it, right? So it was very clear that we had to like start rolling out the mechanics a lot slower because it's, it's new. Like it's people aren't, haven't seen paper folding before the idea, like the spatial awareness of like how things are on the back after you flip the paper and stuff like that takes a little bit for it to click when, when you haven't seen it before. So we realized, you know, we could actually pace the game a lot slower than, than what we originally had for some of our puzzle design. So that way is like, you know, you don't even learn how to do top and bottom folds until chapter three. Like it's, that's like, that's kind of one of the main mechanics in the third chapter. And then later in the game, you can fold diagonal. And then we added this ability to also rotate the paper. And so you had, so at that point, but at that point in the game, it felt like you kind of have a good understanding. So like the very last couple levels in the game, you can actually rotate any, so you have like three, three different, so you can move the rotation to three different new positions and then also fold it from any direction and also uh, unfold. So you end up having like a whole bunch of stuff that you can do in these puzzles. But by that point that you get there, it's kind of like you've gone through like 50 or so puzzles before you get to the end. And um, it felt like it was a little bit, the pacing felt a little bit better to solve things 
a little bit nicer, which is which is what our goal was with that. And there's also blocks and gravity, so you need to be careful not to squash your character or make them fall off the paper. So that was why we introduced the top folds later, because it also introduces that mechanic. So once once you can fold from the top, you can fold things down from the top, and when they do when you do that, they fall. So we play with that with the player. We play with that like with these pushable blocks that you move around, and you can like drop them off the screen or drop them down from one side to the other. And then we also have like blocks or, or platforms that will disappear if you fold them from one side to the other. And yeah, so stuff like that. Was actual paper used during the development process of this game? Yeah, so every single puzzle in the game has a physical equivalent, I would say, like on graph paper that I sketched out. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's, how we did, that's how we did a lot of the prototyping. It was, it was, I would take some graph paper, I cut it up into like a 30 by 20 little piece of paper, and then I would just draw on it and just figure out like, you know, how does this work when you're folding it? Like, and then basically, the way that it works is in the in Unity, our, our game engine. Steven made a tool that is effectively a digital piece of graph paper, and so I could draw out the level and be like, here's where the platform should be, and, and stuff like that, and then generate the physics from that for to, for testing. We can actually test the physics out pretty quickly once we have a a paper design, and then once we're happy with that, we can kind of give it to art, and then art decorates. It makes everything look really nice. And you are working with a single sheet of paper, as we talked about earlier. Are there two sizes? I'm trying to remember how many size variations I saw during my playthrough. Uh, there are, yeah. We change the size. Like, So when I do my prototyping, I make them always on the same size. But in the game itself, sometimes after I started making them digitally, I'd be like, oh, we can do this puzzle on a smaller or larger piece of paper that would feel better. It's because sometimes the folds are tighter. Tight folds are easier to make on physical paper than they are in the digital ones. So we, mm-hmm. I'd make the, I made some of the levels bigger once we actually translated them. One of my favorite animations is how you display elevators. Do you have any other favorite ways you implemented this paper design? That one was that was interesting, actually. I don't remember where that idea originally came from. I just I realized once we started playing with this idea of each paper being its own like room or area that we could start playing with this idea of like the movement of those papers on a desk. That's effectively what you're doing. So like what happens if we slide the papers instead? And so once we started sliding the papers, like, oh, elevator train. <laughs> it was kind of it was like <laughs> Because we were like, oh, well, the architect's going from their office to the construction site. So how would they get there? Like, they would take an elevator down from their office to the street and then take a subway across. So we skipped the outdoor stuff because it was it was going to be a little bit of work. But we just did. So we went, like, from their office to an elevator down, skipped the step, and then they're in the uh, subway, and then skipped the step. <laughs> and then they're in the, they're in the construction site. So it goes, like, directly to it. But, yeah, it was fun. It was just kind of, like, this idea of, like, once we realized the paper was on a desk, like, and they're coming in next to each other. Um, we could like start sliding them around a bit, and those were two that we felt were were pretty fun, and not like a lot of extra. Not, they didn't require a lot of extra art to do because like the elevator obviously doesn't have anything in the background. It's just like a little box, and then the train. We're just doing like a background, like a scrolling background with parallax of the, the silhouettes of of the city. So it didn't really require a whole lot of new background art for them. So that's why we were able to do them pretty pretty safely. The music is just wonderful. Uh, what direction did you give to the composer to achieve this? Yeah, so Riley Riley Koenig's our our composer, and he did a phenomenal job on the on the soundtrack. Uh, I was really happy with it. It was it was a bit of um it was a back and forth. Like a lot of it was actually pitched by both Riley and the sound team. So the sound team we're working with is Power Up Audio uh, in Vancouver. They worked on a bunch of stuff. They did the sounds for Celeste and Crypt of Necrodancer and stuff like that. So they had a lot of input where it was like, this is what we think would sound the best. And then we kind of worked collaboratively with them and Riley to kind of create the, the soundscape that we wanted. La La Land was really probably the biggest one. We thought it was a really cool idea to have these two 
themes throughout the game, like for each one for the architect, one for the teacher, and then they kind of work independently. And then later in the game, like you can actually hear that they start able to like kind of interweave with each other in a way that's really cool. So that was that was kind of like an original design. That, that they pitched to us, we're like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Like, <laughs> so it wasn't there wasn't a lot. It was more like, yeah, this is good. I really like the music. There was very few times. I would say like the the probably the most direction we we got we gave them was on the design side, where it was like for the puzzle world, like for the emotional world, when we're solving puzzles, we needed things that would be able to loop fundamentally indefinitely, right? Like it had to loop. It was it was a one and a half to two minute loop that had to play mm-hmm. for maybe an hour, depending on how long people were working on puzzles, without kind of being distracting or being frustrating to have to hear the same thing over and over and over again. Puzzles are already inherently, like, they're, they're like, the most... Puzzle design is actually really interesting that way, because, like, what you're trying to do as a designer is intentionally frustrate your player, but just enough that it's not a bad frustration, but, like, you're still kind of fu- creating, like, game de- like frustration as game design. When you- right, just enough where they won't rage quit. And exactly, that's it. So you, you want to... You have to... That's a really controlled environment, where it's like, you have to make sure they're not getting too frustrated either by hitting bugs, right? Because that's the other thing that uh, I think is a, an aspect of, of a puzzle design thing where it's like, if you hit a bug when you're solving a puzzle, you get more frustrated with that bug than I do. I think you do than if you weren't in that headspace. Because you're like, oh man, like, you know, I was... Because you're, you're more convinced that you're on the right track if something goes wrong. Like, I, I was there. It was That was right. It just, the game messed me up. And it's like, that's not always true, but <laughs> it feels <laughs> like that when it happens. And it's totally valid. It's a totally valid response to it. So I wanted to make sure that the music didn't have that kind of effect either, where it's like, oh, this is so grating. I want to just shut off the game. I'm, I'm tired of, of thinking. So what we did look at was was games where that was also true, like puzzle games. So big one was... Um, for me, which is a, a series I really like, was the Professor Layton series. I find the music in those games is, is very repetitive. It's always the same puzzle music for pretty much the entire game. But like you can solve like hundreds of puzzles. You're sitting in these puzzle screens for for hours, hearing the same music, and it actually becomes like catchy at a certain point. Like you're, you're doing playing Professor Layton, and I'm like, I find like I get like kind of like in that right headspace when I hear the music. It actually has like the opposite effect, which is which is cool. So we we tried to look at what those sort of those sort of songs had in common a lot of times it seemed like they had a very strong metronome audible metronome like the timing was very very clear in the song so we we sort of looked at ways that we could do that with our music too for the music that played during the puzzle solving parts was localization something of a challenge with the approach of displaying these text messages artfully on the screen especially as you know later on the whole screen will rotate and that kind of is integrated into the puzzle in a certain way. Yeah, because we weren't able to localize the the text that was inside the environments. So all of the internal dialogue is actually created as part of the art environment and which allowed us to do a lot of things where like we'd make things bigger or we change the orientation of them to kind of help reinforce the, the emotion. Yeah, when we started localizing we're like, well, we're not going to be able to, to do that because we, we didn't know where everything cleanly break, especially in different localizations. Like, we didn't know how to emphasize. Like, a lot of times in English, you could write a sentence where, like, the first half meant one thing. And then when you added the sec- the last half of the sentence, it would give it a different kind of context. And we didn't know how to split, like, the localizations in a way that would make sense. Not all of them would work that way. And, like, where the emphasis needed to be and stuff like that was just, it was just, like, a lot of extra steps that... And then we'd also have to physically go and place them in the world, which would have taken a lot of time. So we weren't able to do that with localization, unfortunately. But we added a subtitle bar at the top for all the for all the other localizations, which I think is is okay. It's it's probably not quite the same experience, I would say, yeah. as in English. But it was going to be way too out of scope to be able to do because we we end up localizing the game into 
it's 14 languages. So <laughs> it was just going to be like this. this. And like some of the languages, like, especially once you start getting into the more um, more character-driven languages like Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, it was like, uh, this is this is even much more difficult. Yeah, you'd have to hire someone native to that language that also had the art background you needed. Yeah, it would have to have been someone who, who understood the art side of it and also the language that was being that was being spoken to know where and how to emphasize the words and break them up and stuff like that. And yeah, it was it wasn't really something that we could do. I played this game primarily with the controller, but did dabble with the touch controls. Do you have a favorite way to play a fold apart? So we we are in the process actually currently of of rewriting our touch controls. We're not super pleased. Like I think they work the way that we designed them, but I don't think the way that we designed them is the most intuitive way for players to play the game with touch. Primarily, like what we do for folding is is a tap and drag mechanic. So you tap to grab an edge and then sw- and then drag over after you grab it. And so we have like there's haptic feedback and an audio feedback when you grab an edge. But if you swipe very quickly, it, it doesn't actually fold the paper. I think we've gotten a lot of and valid feedback um, of players who are like, oh, the controls feel clunky. And I, I think that's fundamentally where that complaint comes from. The expectation, and I think it's a fair one, and it's one that we're gonna we're gonna build mechanics to support it. Is this idea of like you swipe from the from an edge inwards, like immediately, like you just start swiping right away, the paper doesn't move, and and I think that's causing some of the disconnect there. So we're in the process of rewriting our our, our touch controls to kind of support that input. We're trying to minimize. So walking with a controller feels very different than than using the tap to move. Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna we're looking in the ways to kind of minimize the number of taps people need to make to to move the character to. So that's especially in the text messaging parts because the text messaging parts are like you have to tap to move and then you have to tap to mark the messages red or like choose the arrows to select the message and then tap again to select to send it. It's a lot of yeah. tapping. It just it ends up feeling like too much. And like you're always in those text messaging sections, especially you're always walking left to right. And with a controller, it's fine because well, you're using you're using your left thumb. To walk, and then your right thumb is right. the one that's clicking. So it it's separating the inputs. Whereas with with touch, it's always the same input for everything. So we're gonna just get rid of the. We're probably just gonna have the player auto walk through those sections on, on mobile with touch controls. So it's like little things that we're still working on that we want to improve there. But yeah, it's just the it's the touch. It's like the touch and drag versus the swiping on the folding, especially that I think causes some of the issues. Because especially, and this, this is the other thing, it's like if you fold from the top or bottom, if it doesn't work the first time and you do it again, um, the game right now, it doesn't pull up the notification bar. You can't disable it completely, but you can force it to require a double swipe in order to open. But the problem is that if the first swipe doesn't work, people do it again, and then it, ca- <laughs> it opens up. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it causes it causes some issues there. So we're, once we fix this, I think it will minimize that issue as well, so... Yeah, so the game is also coming to PS4. Do you explore using the touchpad at all in that version? We don't. No, I, I, I might, exp- I might explore that at some point using the touchpad. Um, the Switch has the Switch screen has has touch on it as well. We haven't actually activated those things yet. I think we're gonna. I might explore it after we fix the um, like once we kind of get the the touch controls to where we want them. I might start looking into adding them to the to the, some of the consoles. But right now, all the consoles just have controller support. Yeah, thankfully, the Switch doesn't have Notification Center or any of those other complications. This is a really emotional game. Was it hard in the evolution of this game to nail that emotion to make it feel genuine and real? I don't know. I guess I got kind of lucky on that one. <laughs> I, we didn't do a lot of iteration on it. I kind of just wrote it. Like I'm like, these are the emotions that I, I know that we want to touch on. And then I wrote them. And then basically... I think I think where it's and I, and I think the way it gets sold the most in the game isn't even really through the the actual content of the text. I think, like I, I explained to our team what we were trying to do for each 
each emotion. And they would actually have a really good idea of how to sell that with both the animations and a lot, even like the way that the kind of levels or the background art was set up for each puzzle and, and environment. Um, a lot of that was just done by on their team. Like it wasn't really like directed by from the design. It was more just like, this is the emotion that we're trying to convey. And then they would come up with ideas for how we, we could show it. And I think it's just like the way that it all combines. You get that plus you get the music kind of hitting the same emotion. And it seemed like it worked. It was just like the emotions were just things that were based on either things that I felt or, or my significant other felt when we were apart. Or both of us felt at various different times, and it was it was just like how do we how do we write like these are the things that we're thinking, and then how do we actually show that emotion visually too? And it just kind of it actually really worked pretty well. We didn't really have to iterate too much on on the story. And one nice touch is you were able to choose the gender of your character. Do you also get to pick which gender is the architect or the teacher? So we actually let you choose the, the gender of both characters, so you can have. Um, any of the four combinations. Yeah, that's really nice because if you relate more to being the architect or the teacher, you can personalize the game even more and connect with it more so in that way. Yeah, and actually, one of the things that was was fortunate is because a lot of the the writing in English is just them talking to each other or talking internally. No, we, we everything is like you saying either you or saying I or me, and it's like it's not it's not gendered in English. So we're actually able to we were actually able to avoid gendered language in English entirely. So it's a little bit more up to the player, too, like which gender they want to ascribe to each each model, I guess. We couldn't avoid it in some of the other languages. A lot of languages, especially the romantic languages, have very gender. It's very, very gendered, right? So it's it was hard to avoid it entirely, but in English we were able to do it in a way that we were happy with, so it was good. How early on did you know a full apart would be a part of Apple Arcade? Uh, it was actually pretty late. Apple approached us last April, and we were, we were mostly, like the content was at that point was mostly done. We were fixing up, we were fixing bugs and things like that at that point. Um, and they came to us and were like, do you want to be part of this Apple Arcade? And we're like, well, yeah, that sounds great. Cause I'm like, I was really excited. Cause I was like, you know, mobile was always something that I thought would be a very good fit for the game in terms of being able to create this idea of, of folding paper with the touch controls. But the concern on our end was more of a business side where it was like a premium, premium mobile games just aren't as financially viable for, especially for smaller teams now. And so it was one of those things where we're like, well, we're going to release it on PC and console and then you know see how things do, and then we can like port it to mobile later. When Apple came to us with the opportunity to work with them right away, we we're like, yes, that sounds awesome. Like I'm I'm really excited about doing this because I really like what they're doing with Apple Arcade. Because the thing is, as a, as a game designer, it's like there's a lot of untapped potential in in the mobile space for these more like premium game experiences where it's like you're playing with the actual input as different than like pretty much any other platform. There's a lot of yeah. things you can do on well with touch controls that are very, very different than what you can do with any other thing because you're holding the device in your hand. And so you can do things with like swiping, you can do stuff like um, with the gyroscope and stuff like that. Or just this idea of like the screen being smaller. And it's like that's a lot of really interesting stuff I think as a, for indie studios who have the kind of interest in exploring those spaces, but not necessarily the resources to compete with the marketing on the marketing side of them once they're finished the products. So, so Apple Arcade as as a service is 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 phenomenal that way because I like the fact that Apple's actually fundamentally throwing their weight behind these types of premium experiences on their devices, which allows for indies to kind of start experimenting with some of this stuff. And I think it's good. I think I think it'll start pushing some ideas in the mobile space and some of the mobile design forward or in ways that we wouldn't have been able to be able to play or see if, you know, everything had to be 
kind of going through either like you have to change the model a lot of times too like you might have to do it as a free-to-play game yeah so i'm like so apple arcade once we had that opportunity we're like yes <laughs> it sounds great <laughs> we're really excited it's like something i wanted to do but we weren't able to really justify how to do it business-wise and and working with apple was was a good way to help us be able to spend the time to properly kind of create the game for for mobile and even now we're, we're like still still improving it but um just having that original opportunity was was really cool and with building the game in Unity, has that made it easier to port it to iOS and make that iOS version? That is a bigger step than I think people take for granted. Well, it, okay, so if you're building the game from the beginning with the knowledge that you're going to be supporting mobile, it's it's a much different scenario than mm-hmm. when you finish the yeah. game. and Because you, you make a lot of assumptions with especially on how much memory you have available to you. Very, very, very different when you're just designing for consoles and PC and then designing for mobile. And that was probably, honestly, of the whole process, that was where we had the the longest time of trying to figure out because our game is deceptive in the sense that it looks like graphically not very intense. But the problem is because of the way that every single side of the paper is its own environment, Like it's, a, it's effectively an entirely different um, seen in Unity, every time, every side, every piece of paper, every side of the paper, and then every time you fold, we're creating a new camera. So we're doing a lot of render passes that most games don't need to do. <laughs> we're actually rendering more than most games, but it doesn't seem that way because our art style and stuff looks much more simple. And so it's it's intensive on the memory side because we have to keep all of those environments in memory or accessible a lot more than we you normally have to do if you're just rendering just like one environment. But um, so that caused that caused a lot of things that we had to figure out how to solve that in a way that worked well on on the mobile devices. That was a lot of work. So it was like, yeah, in theory, I mean, <laughs> yes, in, in the sense that we could push a button and it would make a mobile build, but it just didn't run. It would already crash because we ran out of memory. So right. there's a lot of optimization on the back end to to get things working. Now, I mean, there's some stuff there that we, we know for new projects where it's like, oh, we probably should have designed this stuff this way anyways because it's more efficient. Uh, or if we know that we're making something for mobile right from the start, you, you make different assumptions. And how did screen aspect ratio factor in with Apple Arcade? You have 60 by 9 with TVs. You have 4 by 3 with most iPads, but not all iPads. You have the iPhone 10 that has that weird tall format. So how'd that factor in? Yeah, and you also have um, so you actually have you have four by three, you have sixty-nine. We ended up adding like it's like three different aspect ratios on top of because everything was sixty-nine before, right? So it was, we're just we're just doing for TVs and uh, yeah. and monitors. So so at that point, then we had to like make sure that things with the cameras are are not going off screen and stuff like that as well. So and the UI has to because the UI kind of gets funky once you start doing fourteen or four by three versus sixty-nine and like. Right. Having things like move around, so we had to make sure like everything looked good on all the aspect ratios. So yeah, it's like there's a lot of stuff that gets added when you when you go to mobile like that. So that was why it ended up taking us about a year. Like we we started working with them, like we started talking to them in April. By the time we were actually working full time on Apple Arcade stuff, it was but June, and then we just launched in in April. So yeah, so it was about ten months. <laughs> yeah, the four by three is funny because that's what games used to be with the old CRT TVs, and now with iPad, we're going back to that. Yeah, I think we had four by three support because, like, we were like, "Well, if someone's playing it on some really old monitor, I guess we should support it." But <laughs> like the wider, the wider screens um, was a big one, and or the iPhone X, I think too, is like, yeah, all that stuff. Where it was like, you have this empty space, and you have to make sure. And the other thing is too is is it's not just the full screen; you also have the notches too. So you have, you have to account for the notches because you're supposed to have well, you need to have art behind it. Right, so like you have to be able to render everything for that full screen, but then also make sure there's no UI 
within that little notch and stuff like that. So like, there's a lot of little things that need to be accounted for when you, you start doing all the different devices. Now, thankfully, Apple has a very limited amount of things. <laughs> limited device. It's not like doing it for for like a more like Android is like everything, and right. there's a whole lot of edge cases there. But we knew all the edge cases for Apple, so we could actually test them. So it was it was nice. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. I think I think I guess the, the most relevant stuff for Apple Arcade is we're, we're excited about um, kind of continuing to improve the game. So we're working on on fixing a lot of bugs right now and fixing, like I said, fixing touch controls. We do have some some plans for for future content too. So I'm excited about that. No no real announcements on it, but other than that, it's coming at some point. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm really happy. Like we've had a lot of people play the game on on Apple Arcade, give us a lot of really really useful feedback. I'm really happy that we were able to get it in front of so many players. Uh, I think that's probably like one of the best things about being on the service is we're reaching an audience that we may not have been able to reach just through PC and console. And so that's been really that's been really helpful. It's been really cool, and we've been hearing a lot of cool things back from people. Where can people find more information about a full apart? So we have so our, our Twitter handle is LRG Thunder, so LRG for Lightning Ride Games, and then Thunder. And that's where we kind of announce, like if there's any updates or anything like that, it'll be announced there. That's where I would say that's that's just probably the best place for us. Like if you want to contact us directly, it can be we can be reached through that too. We're pretty good about trying to respond to people. We've had bug reports come through Twitter. <laughs> we're like, oh well, let's take a look. And so we found we've actually found some stuff just from people telling us, like sending us tweets or our DMs about about some of the issues they found. So. Well, thank you again, Mark, for your time today. It's been wonderful learning more about A Fold Apart. As I said before, this is a just really fantastic game and really does remind me of Pixar shorts in many ways. And thanks again. Really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Well, that was my interview with Mark, all about a full apart. Thanks again to Mark for his time, and thanks to you for tuning in to this week's episode. Make sure to go out to Apple Arcade right now to download a full apart. It's really a remarkable title and something that I think everyone should experience. Well, with that, you can send me your feedback at applearcadepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll talk to everyone again real soon. <laughs>